0: We're in Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, called him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. We are following Jesus on the road to the cross through the Gospel of Mark. You'll notice if you read the text closely, we skipped four verses just now uh, between the story we read last week and the story we read this week because I'm so intrigued by this question that Jesus asks with curiosity and with empathy. He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he asked the disciples. Last week the disciples said, what do you want me to do for, or they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus is like, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And he engages with their, their expression of what it is they desire, and he directs that desire to and through him. And so now today is another example of Jesus encountering a different person, and he asks that same question, what do you want me to do for you? And so I want to spend this week again and then next week again on these two stories to talk about what to do with our wants and our desires, how to make sense of our wants and our desires. And you can listen last week to see the beginning of that conversation. But this week, I want to kind of give us an encouragement that I would love for our response to that question. If Jesus was to ask us that question to be, I want to want you, Jesus, that we would ultimately, our answer to that, it sounds very Sunday school-esque. What do you really want me to do for you? I just want you, Jesus. But I would tell you, that, that is the answer of the very childlike kid in Sunday school. And even if you go through all of life and learn and experience all the things, that it will only you will only find it to be more true. That the thing we need to answer Moses' question is Jesus. That we want to want Jesus above all else. And so the kind of question that is guiding all of our conversation today is why do we need to want Jesus? Why do humans need to embrace that want above all other wants. Kind of three guiding questions for that is, what difference does it make if we want Jesus? Like, what effect does that have? Why is wanting Jesus the only way for our deepest wants to be fulfilled? And what is our only reasonable response in light of how we answer those first two questions? So what difference does it make to want him? How does that answer the need? Why is wanting him the only way for us to be truly satisfied, truly content, for our desires to genuinely be quenched even in this life? And what's our only reasonable response in light of that? So what difference does it make if we want Jesus? Here's why it's so important to want him. Because Jesus comes where he's wanted. Jesus comes where he's wanted. So if you want to encounter Jesus, if you want to experience Jesus, you actually need to want him. God does not just overpower our desires to enter into the room. Think about how humans work. You do not like the person that just projects themselves onto you. That is... You will hug me whether you like it or not. You will have me at your house, and uh, I will come to your house, and I will not leave by 9 when I'm supposed to be horizontal. You know what I mean? Those kind of people, you're like, I just would like some space. you know. But Jesus is like that too. Even though he's king, he's God, he could force his way onto you. He is meek and gentle with his authority because he wants genuine relationship with us. And so you won't actually get Jesus if you don't want Jesus. He, in the end, gives us what we want. And if we don't want him, he will give us not him. And you can see in this story how much blind Bart wants Jesus. They came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he found out this one with the reputation of possible healing is coming by, and he began to shout. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This begin to shout means like repetitive shouting. It's a continual, repetitive asking. It is not like I'm going to ask one time. There is a sign of wanting and how repetitive and continual he's asking. And it's an enthusiastic shout. This is more like an outcry. This is like a scream. It is not like, Sir, I beg your pardon, could you please come assist me with this thing over here? This is like making an undignified scene of screaming to get Jesus' attention. And he tells him in that shout, he not only does it repeatedly, he not only does it with loudness, but he tells him exactly what he wants. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So many told him to stop, rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more. He just kept doing it, screaming all the louder and all the more. Son of David, he ascribes to him a sense of authority. He is king. Please have mercy on me. Help me in my situation. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. And he had a cloak that he probably is like the only thing he owns. And he, imagine him like laying out and he's like collecting any donations he can get on this cloak. He just heaves that aside. Whatever I was spread about on that cloak that he's been given is gone. He's like, I, whatever of what has been given to my outcries and my shouting, I don't care about it anymore. He jumps up and runs to Jesus to encounter him. But I notice if he's on this road, Jesus is, a crowd is with them. There's a murmur going through the crowd. Like this is Jesus of Nazareth, the one we're kind of looking at expecting and the, kind of, the one that is kind of like doing wild and exciting things. Lots of people probably need healing. Lots of people are giving him attention, but this one, he stops and calls him and invites him. Jesus comes where he's wanted. Jesus is clearly wanted by this man, and Jesus stops and responds to him. If you actually want Jesus, you will encounter him. And what's Jesus do? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks, he asks him, straight up. Okay, you have my attention, I'm here. What do you want me to do? And he says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. So some of you may say, man, it'd be easy to want Jesus if he would give me my immediate request. And that would be the easy way out. But I want to keep pressing into this to emphasize that i want to emphasize that Jesus comes where he is wanted. Not Jesus' stuff comes where it's wanted. There's a distinction. The disciples wanted Jesus' stuff. Please give me authority. Please give me power. Please help me to have ambition. I want to be great. Let me sit by your side. Does Jesus give them that want? Nope. He's like, let's talk about this. Let's redirect this. You'll get something like that. It's gonna come through a different kind of suffering. And so what I'm emphasizing here is not if you want Jesus's provision, or Jesus's healing, or Jesus's answers, or Jesus's justice, or Jesus's stuff. You just have to want it, and then you'll get his stuff. Again, think about human relationships as well. No one likes the kind of child that seems entitled. Even parents struggle with an adult child that just seems entitled, always expecting, surely you will give me what I want apart from relationship. Think about the prodigal son. He says to the father, the wealthy father, I don't really want you. I'd rather you just die so I can have your stuff. And he loses their relationship and I'm emphasizing wanting Jesus and you will get your encounter with Jesus that's the promise if you want Jesus you will get Jesus and occasionally your want may line up your pressing want the thing you think you want the most may line up like it does for this man and it feels like wow that's great but I wanna keep pressing in to see if that even would answer all of our desires. And so I wanna push into this question as why is wanting Jesus the only way for our deepest wants to be fulfilled? It's the next part. Why is wanting Jesus the only way for our deepest wants to be fulfilled? I, guess I got a question about this. Would being able to see suddenly fulfill every desire and end every problem for the blind man? Any of y'all blind? I'm asking that question because it's such a small room. I don't think anyone's blind in here. Y'all still got problems? Yeah, y'all still discontent? Yeah, you still have anxiety? Yeah, so when this man's able to see, he is welcomed into the life that all of us live, which is of constant want. You ever had something you so deeply longed for, got it, and it's like, that's great, and also it didn't solve every problem. I long, many of you have been around a bit, know it's how funny of a story it is. How deeply I wanted this role here. You remember that? Have I told you the story? How much I was like the second it was available, I'm like, I am gonna crawl to common ground. Had one conversation with the elders, and I'm like, I'm ready to get married. Are you? It's like really good. It's like um, no, not quite. <laughs> so, but I'm ready to like crawl here. And I prayed and begged. And I'm like, God, I want. I really want to do. I want this. I think I want this. And it's two and a half years in, and like it has been this that fulfilling. Like, it's been that good. Like the church is what I thought it would be but it did not solve every personal problem. You get here, and I'm like, you know, five months in, six months in, I'm like, ooh, man, I got, I got deep insecurity here. There's some fears, there's some anxiety driving me. God answered this prayer. Look at these journals. I can't believe I wrote how much I wanted that. Look, he gave it to me. I was desperate here, and like, when's Angie gonna send me an email? Like, three weeks later. <laughs> now she sent me the email, and like, I got the thing, and like, it's been great, and also, it did not solve every problem just like being able to see. I remember this uh, woman at our last church, like 10 years ago, was desperate for a child. They had serious fertility issues. If you uh, couples have been there, where it's like overwhelming pain, and like there was lots of surrounding her in prayer for uh, this baby, and she begged God, and in uh, every small group would describe how much like not having that child is like really the source of all of her marital problems, her anxiety, and then God answered that prayer. She has two babies now, and yet, We could see in her, not long after, like man, a lot of those problems remained. He did feel a deep longing, but it was not the whole answer. Ronald Roheiser, in this book, wrote this quote that kind of gives a sense of this uh, unfinished symphony of everything in this life is an unfinished symphony. He says this, beauty, when we experience it, makes us restless when it should give us peace. The love we experience with others does not fulfill our deep longings. The relationships we have within our families seem too domestic to be fulfilling. Our job is inadequate to the dreams we have for ourselves. The place we live seems small town in comparison to other places. The idea we have for our lives habitually crucifies the reality of our lives and makes us too restless to sit peacefully at our own tables, to sleep peacefully in our own beds, and be at ease with our own skins. Our lives seem too small for us, and we are always waiting for something or somebody to come along and change things so that our real lives as we imagine them might begin. A sense of quiet desperation. A sense of unfulfilled longing. And if you're like, man, that doesn't really describe me, I would bet you probably know Jesus well. Like you're probably living what I'm after with this sermon if that doesn't describe you. If you have a joyful contentment, what the relationships and responsibilities you have, but for many of us, you spend their early life deeply longing longing to get all your life in order, and your relationship's established, and maybe your home purchased and maybe a job that you really dreamed of, and then you get it, and then you have this restlessness. like, oh, is this it? I'm kinda anxious here. C.S. Lewis sums it up this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is a sense of clarity he arrived to on his way from becoming being an atheist to becoming a Christian, recognizing there's something beyond what's immediately available in this life. So why is wanting Jesus the only way to fulfill our deepest wants? It's because Jesus is the ultimate source and end, the beginning and goal of every want that we would have. If you go back to creation, actually, I guess I'm going to ask this question. What all would this man have lost by being blind? Let's zoom out. What would he have lost? on the surface, he wants to see. So think about all that he would have lost by being blind and all that he would get access to now that he could see. Clearly, I already established, he's gonna still have more problems. But he does have an access to things in life now that he was made for that he didn't before. Think about that. Because I want to connect that question to, think of what you long for right now. We asked that question last week. What is it you really want? and keep peeling back the layers. What's beneath that? What do you really want beneath what you think you want right on the surface? It's all gonna get somewhere. So this blind man, if he's on the side begging, he is not a contributor to society. He's not doing something meaningful. The only thing he can have to give is really to take. He sits on the side of the road and all he can do is receive. He doesn't get to give. When I went on a lot of mission trips to Guatemala, uh, the leaders down there would always tell us that the best thing you can give a person is the opportunity to be generous. And they would try to say that to, to say the people we are down there with, we are empowering them to be able to give and to lead and to love and not just receive salvation from the people traveling from the US. And so this blind man doesn't have an ability to give and to contribute, which is a deep ache. And think about also his capacity to belong. When you're with a group, you're like, did you see this? Oh my goodness, look over there, watch that. He is missing out on a full participation with community that he would have if he can be able to see. And so if you think about creation, deep down from the beginning, we're all created to deeply, our deepest wants are to belong fully and truly and to contribute positively and meaningfully. If you think about creation, God makes the world and calls it good, and he makes human beings as a center crown of creation to be in relationship with him and each other. And he gives them a job to be in relationship with God and each other, to be fruitful and multiply, to not be alone, but be in community, to till and keep the garden, to name the animals, to steward and rule over creation, not with dominance and violence, but giving God's merciful and creative and loving care into the world and they were supposed to spread the whole world and have that sense of belonging with God and his people, with life from his spirit, and contribute meaningfully to creation. We have that hardwired in us. And when babies come out of the womb, they immediately are looking to see who they belong to. It's like, I'm looking for someone to love me. Who's gonna notice me? Children have that from the get-go. And the second children are able to move at all, the first thing on their agenda, and only thing is to dominate their space. We want to demonstrate that we have authority over our space. So it will be really helpful by emptying every drawer in this room. And if you pick it up, I'm gonna get mad because I want to show that I have a real effect on my environment. And then the second they can move more, and they like see mom and dad doing chores, they're like, I think I'll join in. And so they'd like to join in and help. Y'all kids try to help. My goodness, man, it'll make a chore that should be 10 minutes turn into a three hour chore. But they want to belong to the family and contribute meaningfully because that's rooted in creation, all empowered by God's spirit. But we know if we turn the page into chapter three, the serpent comes. Yes, page three of our Bible that we trust with all of our life has a a speaking serpent. It's very true, though. What he has to say is true. He says to Eve, you're certainly not going to die if you eat that fruit. You're not supposed to. For God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That knowing good and evil, they already know the command. And it's not like God in that day, God experiences evil because God is perfect, he doesn't experience it. This knowing good and evil is is assuming the authority and arrogance to decide what is right and wrong. To maybe fulfill and quench those deep hungers and deep longings in a way that they think is best. And that's why notice how much desire and want drives ease choice she sees the fruit that was good for food. It's pleasing to the eye, it looks good, it would taste good, it's desirable for giving me wisdom, and wisdom will help me belong and contribute in a meaningful way. And so I'm gonna take that, and I'm gonna eat of it, make up my own rules for right and wrong, and now I'm gonna give it to my husband so he can partake in it too, and he ate it, and what happens immediately? They feel ashamed. When they once had harmony, they were belonging well together with God, now there's blame and they're torn apart, and they're hiding from each other, and from God, when they were created for belonging and meaningful contribution and being known and being loved and giving knowledge and giving love, they chose to sort out their desires their own way, not find them ultimately fulfilled in the God that gave them those meaningful roles. And instead the curse comes and everything is torn apart. The way to belong and the way to contribute gets broken and our desires are worked to find a way to be fulfilled in something other than God. We go about our own way, like them, knowing good and evil, to decide how to belong, how to contribute, where to find community, and where to find meaning and significance. C.S. Lewis writes a way how we distort those desires. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like Adam and Eve, we've taken that fruit and think, man, I have a deep, intimate longing to be known and to be loved, to give love and to know people. I have a deep, intimate longing to have meaningful contribution This job seems meaningless. My life seems not worth it. What is worth it? What is this life going to have some weight to it, some meaningful significance? And we will just find ways to fulfill those in all kinds of ways that doesn't let Jesus determine that. And the the result is that permanent discontentment, that ache that even if you get something, you're like, oh, that didn't quite meet the deepest longing. But praise God that he broke in and did not leave us there. And he came to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us, to restore a way to belong with him and in a community that is led by justice and forgiveness and mercy, ideally. that we strive to show that charity and love to one another, even among our differences. And he died to the ways that our desires are distorted. Let them do its worst to him to conquer the way our disordered desires have wreaked havoc on the world and provided a way for us to belong with him and to be in community with him and to contribute meaningfully. And that's what the end of the whole story, last two chapters of the Bible, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He's gonna be with them, true, fulfilled, final belonging, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And then there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of sun for the Lord, but God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever a renewed belonging with God and God's people. No more conflict, no more violence, no more injustice, no more lack of fairness, no more shame, no more hiding, no more all the things that would disrupt our relationships, all the jealousy and envy and competition and ambition, gone, made one with God and his people. And we have a job. Heaven is not like, let's just go play the harp up there with other you know, weird angels from those weird pictures that we've seen growing up and stuff. It's like, you have a job now. You're gonna rule a new creation with God but all the toil of labor will be gone. It's only like that feeling that you get if you have a really, really good day with work or your like vocation, it seems to really click. It's like that times infinity, that level of like contribution as a family of God. That is the end of the story. And so our deepest, deepest desires find their way in true belonging and true, true contribution with God and God's people. David understood this when he praised his prayer in Psalm 63. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Your love is better than life. David had his dreams fulfilled. Dreams he didn't even know he had. All the power and authority given to David. First real good king that everybody loved him. He had the highest reputation. He had lots and lots and lots of romantic love, to say it lightly. <laughs> he had all his full taste of all that life could offer. And he's like, man, it doesn't do it. It doesn't finish it. It doesn't quench it. Your love, God's love, is better than life. You're like, man, if I had all that David had, I might pray that prayer. He's praying this prayer in the desert after his son tried to take over his kingdom and is trying to kill him. Talk about a torn apart life. He's lost everything, and there's not a sense of, God, I just want all my stuff back. He's like, God, I've had all the stuff. It wreaked havoc on my life because I didn't prioritize you. If you know David's story, he did it. He is Ted turned into a rapist and abuser and a murderer. But he comes to the end and realizes, no, God, your love is better than life. All of my deepest longings was your love all along. That I get true oneness with you, true belonging. You give me a sense of order and of wisdom. Your love is better than life. You see me and know me and love me despite my mistakes. Your love is better than life. That's the driver to realize it all drives to that point. So if these things are true, what is our reasonable response? This blind man shows us to direct every want to and through Jesus. All the wants. We think there's many of them. You can have a whole list of things we want. Drive all those, funnel them to one and that is Jesus. Notice this uh, man here. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Not just heal. It's not just therapeuto heal. It is safe. He is total brought total salvation to this man, and immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is when you realize he did not just want God's stuff, the healing. He wanted God. He did not just want Jesus' stuff. He wanted Jesus because he made the choice the rich man wouldn't have made. Jesus says, come join me on the road. Give up everything. Rich man said, no. He he heals the blind man, and the blind man says, I'll follow you along the road. And if you're an avid reader of Mark, you realize that on the road, where are we going? We're going to die on the cross. The very next passage, we already preached it because of Palm Sunday, was a triumphal entry. So he joins Jesus on the road to walk 17 miles in some not comfortable sandals to enter into Jerusalem, and to watch Jesus die. And out of all Jesus' healings, we have two that have a name. This is one of them. And many people think that's because when they're writing this, people know blind Bart. He's a part of the church now. So on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, Bart never left. Bartimaeus is still following Jesus on the road. He did not just stop at receiving the healing. Jesus tells a story, or the Gospel of Luke tells a story where Jesus heals 10 lepers and lets them get healing when they're away from him. Only one comes back to say thank you. The rest of them just take their healing and go. We, too, can take Jesus' stuff and be content with that. But Jesus is healing to draw us to a deeper hunger that only can be fulfilled through him. To where we are following him along the road and not just wanting Jesus' stuff, but just wanting Jesus and let the stuff fall while it may. And sometimes you will see gifts and longings be met, and many times, many times, there will be a gap. And you will realize that that healing is pointing to the end of all things when our longings will finally be fulfilled, because many of them will not be met totally right now. But in the meantime, we seek only Jesus, let him reorder our desires, and find that contentment in him and him alone. Soren Kierkegaard, it's hard to find a way to type that O there. He was from Denmark a brilliant philosopher in uh, the 9th century. He wrote this when he was 34. I'm 36 and can barely make a grilled cheese sandwich. But he wrote, purity of heart is to will one thing. That ultimately, we will a lot of things. We think we want a lot of things. But the invitation from Jesus is to find that he is the source and goal of every want. And his presence, his friendship, his affirmation of us is what we deeply long for to know that we are loved and forgiven, to know that no matter what could happen, the suffering, the pain, the hardest part about suffering is it makes you feel abandoned. Like I'm not seen, I'm alone. But the affirmation from Jesus is no, suffering is not that. I love you, I'm committed to you, you have what you need in me. And so my prayer for us is not just like, hey, let's check off some boxes. This church does that really well. You all check off the boxes. There's a high degree of service and giving and showing up here. Praise God. What I'm praying for is a deep longing hunger. That not just the hours a week that we are gathered or meet on SFGs or sign up to serve, which you all do so well, but a deep hunger that permeates it all, that you don't just want Jesus' stuff and like for life to be okay, but you hunger for the Lord. I'm praying for that. A deep hunger for the Lord. I want that. I feel like the bar is so low in Christian culture in our country where it's like, yeah, okay, I'll do the thing, I'll go to church, I'll do the thing, I'll sign up for the stuff, that's fine. I want like deep renewal that only comes from like a community of people that just begging God to do something new and fresh and different. And no matter what he does to that answer that prayer, it is met by we get his presence. His presence will come where we want it. And if we just want his presence, the rest will sort itself out. So I want to close with this prayer. That's uh, Soren Kierkegaard says in the beginning of this book, Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing. Father in heaven, what is man without you? What is all that he knows? Vast accumulation, though, it be but a chipped fragment if he doesn't know you. What is all of his striving? Could it even encompass a world? But a half-finished work if he does not know you. You, the one who is one thing and who is all. So may you give to the intellect, wisdom to comprehend that one thing. To the heart, sincerity to receive this understanding. To the will, purity that wills only one thing. In prosperity, may you grant perseverance to will one thing. Amid distractions, collectedness to will one thing. In suffering, patience to will one thing. O you who give both the beginning and the completion, may you early at the dawn of day give to the young person The resolution to will one thing as the day wanes, may you give the old person a renewed remembrance of their first resolution. That the first may be like the last and the last like the first in possession of a life that has willed only one thing. What happens to a life that just says, I want to will one thing. I want to stay on track. All the distractions, God give me the focus to will one thing. Even when you give me my answers to my prayers, give me the perseverance to keep chasing deeper beneath those to the one thing. May you give young people, oh, I'm praying so much for young people to have a sense that that is the only answer to all their deepest longings. A deep hunger to get their life together will result in discontentment if it is not found with Jesus running the show. And for old folks, find a way that no matter how life disappoints you, you wanted Jesus so much, he gave you what you think he wanted, and you still battle that ache and that urge. Don't part ways from the presence of God. He will, in the end, fulfill all the things so that at the end of, all of your life, you eventually are able to give your death away. that even your death will is one thing. You know that for the UBEN's community, Ron Reed was a life like that. He's a legend here. If you're somewhat new here, Don't worry, I am too, but I got to experience the last year of Ron Reed's life, and it was a life that willed one thing. He hungered for the love of Jesus, he knew the love of Jesus, and he told people all the time, you are loved by Jesus. And it was, when you get to his funeral, how tragic it was that it ended so early, his life ended so early, it was clear from everyone that spoke and everyone in the room, this was a man who willed one thing. And in the end, because of that, he gave his death away to the point that everyone's like, yeah, man, I want to be like Ron. And so what choices do we make now that says, I want to will one thing and give my life away and be okay with however else things will fall apart or fall together because I only want Jesus' presence in the end because in the end, he will win. Let's pray.